0: welcome to another edition of the ride home with john and kathy live from the salem pittsburgh studios and now here are your hosts john hall and kathy emmons
2: we'll let you decide maybe or maybe not pre-recorded you decide yeah, as you hear you us right put, now you can choose right Right now, I'm Just lifting my hands up. <laughs> that's I'm right. Waving no, it's back real. And forth. It's Where? really us. We are real. Yeah. It is
3: really beautiful
2: us. today. Absolutely gorgeous. Sun is shining, and uh, fall is truly upon us.
3: Hmm. Yeah, I think so.
2: <sighs> I mean, I'm wearing winter coats. So I'm taking the dog for a walk.
3: Well, here's the thing, though. I have to wear a short sleeve shirt here because our offices are, you know, still mm-hmm. 95.
2: My office. Feels it's a like... lot
3: to figure out how to get out the house.
2: Well, I, I have a winter wardrobe, but yeah. I can't wear it here. No,
3: that's the thing. Right?
2: My office has like this hole in the ceiling where it feels as though there's a hurricane blowing down on me. You
3: have like gale force winds <laughs> exactly, they right? come into your office. I don't, I don't of the know weather what guy. that's about.
2: The weather in this area, excepting for John's office, which is totally different <laughs> than everything else that's going on there. Anyway.
3: Coming up on today's program, in the 5 o'clock hour, we're very much looking forward to meeting Jeff Jacoby, or Jacoby, we'll ask him how to pronounce his name. He's an op-ed columnist for the Boston Globe, and uh, he is of Jewish heritage. He's the son of Holocaust survivors, and he's going to come on the air live from Boston and talk to us about how anti-Semitism has been a part of his life. Yeah,
2: fascinating. Uh, I mean, do we need, necessarily, to support the Jewish people? Yes, undoubtedly, when you consider the history of the people yes. and the continual pounding these people take, yes. we as believers of Jesus yes. Christ need to come together and embrace our Jewish brothers and sisters. Yes. Truly we do. So yes. we'll talk, we look forward to Jeff Jacoby about yes, that. Yes, and that's
3: independent of what you feel about the policy of the state of Israel. Yes, thank but you. But supporting uh, Jewish people, that should be understood. Paramount. It should be paramount. Mm-hmm. Um, also in the five o'clock hour, um, what is RFK going to interject into the presidential race.
2: RFK. I thought that was like, you know, I'm taking a shot for that. Oh, like, like CBD. Uh, v, v, if uh, CBD
3: doesn't work, you can try RFK.
2: <laughs> right. Uh, what's the other thing, the respiratory thing? Uh, RV, oh, RSV. R, RSV. RSV, RFK, yeah, CBD. It's a lot. I mean, it's a the heck's going on.
3: <laughs> really? I'll take
2: a shot for it. Wake me up uh, next January. Okay, great.
3: Okay. Great. And uh, we'll talk about the sleep survey of 2023 at Speaking the end of, of this hour. Up, yeah. I'd like to take a nap.
2: Yeah, very much so. Don't
3: you like a nap?
2: I do like a nap, but there has to be like a lot of time around it, like the pre-nap and then the post-nap. Because once you wake up from the nap, then you know it's not like you're going to spring into action, right? Oh no! It's got to be like a jet. Of course
3: not. So it's yeah. gonna be hours. And I mean, you know what? You know what? I don't understand at hmm. all. Cat nap. Cat nap. Yeah. I don't. Cat nap doesn't has never worked yep. for me. Mm-hmm. If I'm taking a nap, it's ninety minutes. Um,
2: that's my wife. Goes. I say, take a nap. She goes, I'm so tired. Take a nap. I go, she goes, no, maybe I'll just, for like 10 minutes, I'll just close my eyes. I'm like, seriously? I'm going to bed. Exactly. (laughs) Why? Cover me up. (laughs) Cover me up. I mean, five minutes, 10 minutes, a cat nap? What good
3: is that going to
2: do you? Nothing. No. I I wake up grumpy, which nobody wants to be part of. Right. Of course.
3: When, uh. My husband comes home from work, and of course, I'm never home because I'm here at the station, yeah. but my children have told me this. Uh, my husband will uh, prepares his coffee in the afternoon. He doesn't <laughs> drink it in the morning, so he prepares his coffee, and he puts it on the stove. Yeah. He uses one of those Bialetti things. Oh, sure. Anyway, he puts it on the stove, mm. and he sets the timer for uh, something like eight minutes or 13 <laughs> minutes or something. He's taking a nap. And then he goes in and lays on his, wait, on his back on the floor. Mm-hmm. No pillow, mm-hmm. no blanket. Now, don't you want to be happy, is what I say.
2: Does he have a straw mat And that he carries with him? <laughs>
3: <He's-> <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he could use a hair shirt. <laughs> I mean, Eric, we
2: love you. Yeah. But my, please surrender to comfort.
3: What Would is, you please? What is going on? Anyway, all right. Oh, other, other news of Eric. I just feel like I should bring it up while we <laughs> spouse news. No, this is the new segment you. on the right. Yeah, so uh, why, I, why. I don't know if I've ever I mentioned this before, but I feel like this is the time to do it. Mm. Um, Eric. <laughs> My husband cannot stand to sleep with a sheet on. Okay?
2: Does he have like a skin disease? No, he just doesn't like it. No sheet? So
3: A fitted sheet, yes, but no flat sheet. He cannot have anything to do with a flat sheet. What's he have on? Well, usually he uses a blanket that's like, he's a very tall man, Mm -hmm. that's too short for him, and then he wears his slippers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, poor guy.
2: Nothing sacred. We're calling Eric out. Lying on his back on the floor. So when
3: it was cold <laughs> yeah. last night, yeah. <laughs> something shocking happened. I woke him... up this morning. He was underneath the same blanket as me. Uh, I was see? like, what is going on?
2: Age will do that to you. It changes things. <laughs> he needs some comfort I in know. his life.
3: Listen, I've said for years, you know, we're married. We can use the same blanket.
2: No, no. No. Nope. No. <laughs> <laughs> Love the guy.
3: I, don't, I wonder if he had his slippers on. Anyway.
2: hope he's not listening. Mm, he probably is. <laughs> <laughs> gonna... Anyway, let's get the Eric news out of the way and go to some real news. Right? The globe continues to turn. Kath, without uh, further ado, please give us the top four. I said it, four. For
3: Thursday, November 2nd, mm. 2023. Uh, number Eric? <laughs> Eric. God bless you. Number one. Israeli soldiers advanced on Gaza City early today, but were met with fierce resistance from Hamas militants, Israel's military said, as hundreds of Americans appeared set to depart the Hamas-ruled territory and cross the border into Egypt. Um, Israel forces targeted Hamas posts where militants had been shooting mortar rockets toward Israel. Um, Footage has emerged of Hamas fighters as well as militants from its ally, Islamic Jihad, using guerrilla-style tactics emerging from underground tunnels to fire at Israeli tanks, then disappearing back into the underground tunnel network, the Reuters news agency reported today. Israeli forces were closing in on the Gaza Strip's main population center in the north, where Hamas is based and where Israel has been telling civilians to leave. That is from CBS News. Number two. More than two dozen large law firms, John, urged university deans to address anti-Semitic harassment, vandalism, and assault reported on college campuses in recent weeks. This is a report done today by The Wall Street Journal. Check this out. In a letter sent yesterday, the law firms, a group that includes Kirkland and Ellis, Paul, Weiss, Rifkind, Wharton, and Garrison, and Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz say they have been alarmed at reports of violence and bigotry on college campuses in recent weeks, including rallies calling for the death of the Jews and the elimination of the state of Israel. This letter was sent to more than 20 top law school deans. Wow. The letter said that the firms which recruit from these law schools have a zero-tolerance policy for any discrimination or harassment and want to work with the universities to understand how the situation exactly is being addressed. Another signatory, Davis Polk and Wardwell, rescinded three employment offers to law students at Harvard and Columbia, who the firm said were tied to statements about the Israeli-Hamas conflict. Isn't that Mm -hmm, interesting? The Harvard Crimson reported that 30 student groups signed on to a letter that they held in Israel. Are you ready for this? Entirely responsible for all the unfolding violence following the October 7th invasion. Please buy Clue. It's from the Wall Street Journal. Number three, Desmond Mills Jr., one of the five former Memphis police officers charged in connection with the death of Tyree Nichols, pleaded guilty today to federal civil rights and conspiracy offenses. Mills is 33 years old, and he pleaded guilty to two of the four counts, including excessive force and failing to intervene, as well as conspiring to cover up his use of unlawful force. Tyree Nichols, age 29, died in January of this year after being fatally injured by police officers in Memphis, dying three three days later. The officers, all members of the Memphis Police Department unit, pulled Nichols from the car after allegedly stopping him for reckless driving. They beat him. Then medics on the scene failed to administer care, John, for 16 minutes after arriving. Memphis Police Department police chief later said that the department had reviewed footage and could not find any evidence of probable cause for the traffic stop. That's from ABC News. And number four, the Texas Rangers won the f- their first World Series title in the franchise 63 season Love it. history last night. 5-0 over the Diamondbacks in Game 5. And that's your top four at four. Excellent.
2: It was fun. I was, I mean, I was rooting for them.
3: I was rooting for them too. Well, I mean, well, I, mean I was rooting for them ultimately. But yeah. last night, I wanted Arizona to win because I, want, I wanted more baseball. Yeah, well, please. But yeah.
2: now baseball's officially over. We and won't that, see the likes of it until late that, March, early April.
3: That makes me really sad. It is All so sad. right, we need to take a break. All right, we'll so, take a break. After that, we're coming back and we're going to talk to uh, the Reverend Bill Glaze. You know, oh, is cremation wrong? Is it okay? You're asking me. I don't. I'm asking Bill Glaze. He's coming up next.
2: Find out next. to around. Cremation So, ride home. Hey, hi to Wava.
3: Hey, we want to welcome all of our friends from WAVA in the nation's capital. So happy that you're along for the ride home today.
2: So what do you think about cremation? Um, for years, for many, many years, it was sort of this verboten thing, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Oh well, in the church, I think some churches, or some denominations, actively opposed it—that mm-hmm. you shouldn't be cremated. But I think for a lot of people now, uh, maybe it's, uh, expressing you know um, ecological concerns or, or cost, concerns, co- cost concerns, any number of things, people go. It seems like a, a, a simpler easier, less expensive way to go. Cremation. Mm-hmm. Pastor Bill Glaze is back with us. He's a regular guest on our show. Pastor Bill is the uh, pastor at Bethany Baptist Church in the Homewood neighborhood here in the
4: city of Pittsburgh. Hey, Bill. Welcome back. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We can't complain. Yeah, Pretty good. All
0: right, All right Bill. Getting,
4: getting, getting ready for the game tonight. Huh? Uh, we we're are, po- we're po- pumped up. Listen,
3: listen, listen, right before you came on, I'm going to tell the honest truth. John was like, do we really want to subject ourselves to this game tonight? I did. I did
2: <laughs> say that, though. Because you know what's coming.
3: I mean, it's kind of, it's just, I, It Sunday was a lot of angst for mm,
4: me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand.
3: Yeah, as you say. Listen, I know, I can't believe you're a Dallas fan, but whatever. You guys are playing the Eagles this weekend, right?
4: Oh, I'm, I'm, I, I tried out for the Cowboys. I'm not a Dallas fan. I'm oh, I thought you a were a
3: Dallas fan.
4: Still a fan. no. No, I'm a Steeler fan. Oh, that's okay, such good. a relief. Oh
3: my God. gosh, all this time I thought you were a Dallas fan. Good. Holy
2: heck. No No uh uh-uh. <laughs> Well Cam Hayward's back tonight, so that's a good news, right? That's uh gonna be some improvement, we yeah. hope. We hope. <laughs> Is <laughs> Kenny Pickett <laughs> starting? Yeah. Is he?
3: Yeah.
2: Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, anyway, I don't know how to segue
3: between that and this, but <laughs>
2: both stand about the same odds. I tell you the truth. Yeah.
3: Okay, this is well, a big question people have. I think a lot of uh, uh, people, though, are afraid to talk about it. Bill.
4: Well, you know, as a pastor, uh, I get this question uh, more and more uh, every year, and I, you know, just realize how you know prevalent it is among. Uh, Christians uh, you know and you know going back to you know what John said, you know is it's kind of a, a a Johnny come lately phenomenon. however, you know uh, archaeologists have discovered that cremation seemed to uh, be invented around uh, three thousand BC wow. and then even as uh, you know you move uh, ahead in time, you know in in Greece, you know around eight hundred bc you know that one of their ways of disposing the body was uh through cremation and then uh the romans around 600 so uh cremation has has been around for quite a while but uh it was frowned upon by the church because uh the church uh, a lot a lot of people believe that it had its roots in pagan beliefs that if you cremated the body that you know it would free it from the spirit so the uh you know when you cremated it the spirits couldn't come back and 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 haunt people here on this earth so uh you know there was a lot of negativity that was drummed up against cremation right. but you know when you look at cremation today uh one of the main reasons that people get cremated is because it's more affordable mm-hmm. you know when you think about the average funeral uh and i'm talking about on the low end uh you know i checked this out with uh, a funeral director uh, is between uh, uh, $7,500 and $10,000. And then the average cremation is uh, between $1,200 and uh, $3,500. So, you know, there's a, a a wide gap there as far as finances are concerned. And so a lot of people, you know, instead of investing that money, you know, in, uh, in burial, you know, they'd rather, you know, I don't know if they want to use it up before they die or, you know, leave it to their loved ones. Uh, and so, you know, that has made cremation, uh, more affordable Then another, uh, thing about cremation, you know, it seems to be, uh, allow people to plan for their memorial service. Like, uh, when somebody dies and you bury them, you know, you, you, you try to get the body in the ground as, as soon as you can. But when a person is cremated, you know, that kind of leaves it open end mm-hmm. and you can have a memorial service. You're not rushed to have to plan anything. And I, you know what? I'm I'm seeing people, as a pastor, I'm seeing people, you know, pass away. And, you know, I've done some memorial services up to three months after they died. Uh, You know, and I've done, you know, there's been a lot that I've done like a month or two months after they died. So, uh, you know, people are going for cremation for, you know, for that reason. And then, uh, you know, cremation uh, for many people can be more meaningful. You know, I mean, that you actually can decide what you want to do uh, with your ashes. You know, I, uh, I did a a service during COVID and, uh, the lady wanted to be cremated. And, uh, and she, after, uh, you know, we did the service, we went, she wanted her, uh, ashes to be sprinkled at Frick Park. So, you know, we went over there, uh, that day after the service and, you know, I had this big bag of ashes, the family, you know, they all came and we went to uh Frick Park and I sprinkled the ashes. And, uh, Well, you know, the first thing that happened is the wind started blowing, Mm. and the ashes started blowing everywhere and got all on my clothes and everything else. Uh, And then I come to find out that you can't do that. You can't dispose of uh, ashes in a public place like that. But at the time, I didn't know it. But, you know, uh, I know it now. Uh, So, you know, and come to find out that that's actually uh, illegal to, uh, to do that. But, you know, it was meaningful for that person. I don't know if they spent a lot of time at Frick Park, but that's where they wanted their ashes to be uh to be spread. And then, you know, even when you think about land use, you know, uh, you know, you, you look at a lot of these cemeteries and some of them seem to be running out of spaces and so cremation, you know, actually deals with the land use issue. And then cremation seems to be more environmentally friendly. You know, uh you don't have to have trees, you know, to make caskets and the concrete that's used for the vaults and then even the embalming fluid, some uh, people will tell you that, you know, as a person decomposes, that the embalmment fluid seeks, seeks back into the ground. So, uh, you know, it just seems to be a a lot of things. So, you know, th- those are some of the things that are in favor of cremation. Uh, you know, so but, you know, there's another side too where people, you know, are, are against it. But, you know, uh, you know, again, that's that's what I'm seeing more and more. You know, people wanting to be cremated.
2: Yeah, that's good, Bill. I mean, I. I... I think in some ways, like you know, like you've talked about here, it is a, a time and or a generational thing. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, how people looked at the dead. You know, um, post World War II. You know, our parents or grandparents, right? I mean, most likely everybody was, you know, put in a casket. They were embalmed. There was a concrete vault. There was, you know, a, a wake that went on for days. Now, I think people are much more inclined to do something that's. I mean, still honoring the dead, being specific about you know honoring the passing of that person and not being disrespectful to the body. I don't believe that you know cremation is somehow disrespectful um and also it, like you're saying as well, it's an economic issue for a lot of people I mean heck right, fifteen hundred dollars as opposed to ten or fifteen or twenty thousand dollars. you can spend an awful lot of money on a funeral, and it feels as though it's just for what i mean it's it, right um. And I guess it, I guess it goes back to what is best for the family, and to honor those who have been dis, who are deceased, and of course to, to honor God as well, and not necessarily a theological
4: issue, which was is a big it, part of the yeah, discussion. Yeah, or
3: is it a theological issue? Do you see it as one?
4: Some people make it a theological issue. You know, you know, for instance, you know, they'll say that when you look at the gospel, you know, what is the gospel? It's the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, you know, you know some people will say, well, you know, you are and again, I know it's not going to affect somebody getting saved or not getting saved, but they say from a symbolic standpoint, you know, that's taking the the burial out of out of the gospel. And a lot of people, you know, want to be buried, you know, because they believe that that points to their hope, you know, in the resurrection, you know, that Christ is going to resurrect the body. Uh but you know, you can argue against that too to say that, you know, he The same way he's going to resurrect the body, which eventually will become ashes anyways, you know, as it decomposes, you know, that uh, he can resurrect ashes just as well as he can resurrect a a dead body. I agree.
3: I mean, throughout history, we've had people who have died at sea or they have died in war or there have been, you know, any. uh, Right any number of issues I mean, look, uh, at, look
2: at washington dc the tomb of the unknown soldier right or look That's, at you know,
3: look at nine eleven, or look right. at any you know mass cat- die of ma- mass, mass catastrophe it's not like we right. look at those instances and think god is unable to resurrect the body no. we don't think right that.
4: exactly right and and you know and he's able you know and, and you know i often think you know like you said people that die at sea and their body perishes you know and you know i, I hate to think of this thought but you know the fact that they might be consumed by, you know, some some uh, sea creature, uh, you know, and yet and still God is able to resurrect that body. So, uh, you know, as as you look at uh, cremation versus burial, you know, I, I would have to say this, though, to be honest with you, you know, personally, you know, I would lean more towards burial, and I, you know, I have my reasons, but, uh, you know, by no means do I discourage anybody as a pastor from getting cremated because that's, uh, you know, what, You know, again, you know, that's that's a lot of people are making plans for that, you know, while they're still alive and they're letting their family know exactly what they want before, you know, before they uh, pass away. Right.
2: How best to honor the dead and what are the wishes of the living, as, of course, all of us will pass from this earth uh, at one point as well. So uh, make your plans and spell them out carefully, put them in writing so that uh, your survivors know exactly how you would uh, like to be honored as you pass away. Well, that's exactly. good news, yeah.
3: And and let's get back to the Steelers.
4: <laughs> so, speaking uh, of the resurrection yeah, of the dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was cold, John. That was All cold. Right.
3: That All was right. super cold. Uh, how do you feel about tonight, Bill?
4: You know, I'm I'm, I'm hopeful. You know, I, I I think that you know their problem has been as they lose these games, and then at the end of the year, they're trying to win to get into the playoffs. So I'm hoping that they can win more up front. And and kind of you know get into the playoffs that way instead of waiting till the last day to you know hope that they can get in. So yeah. I'm hopeful for tonight. I hope they win tonight.
2: I mean, I, I Bill, I, I got to be honest. I don't think it, I'm not looking at this team as a playoff caliber team. Are you?
4: I I think that you know let's put it this way. The defense is definitely playoff caliber. Yeah. You know they they got they got a great defense. So yeah, you that's know that's only that's
3: only half of the team or
4: yeah maybe a well, third right.
3: depending on how you look at it.
4: I hate to be yeah, Debbie yeah. Downer. I really do. but Yeah, John, okay. pick
3: it up. Sorry, man. I mean, for goodness sake. I saw that um, if the Steelers win tonight, uh, the odds of them getting to the playoffs is like 51%. But if they well, lose tonight, the odds are like 28 or something.
2: And here oh, it's only okay. November. Yeah. I mean, we don't have much to live for here, right? The Pirates stink. Steelers are in bad times. Pens and, aren't looking great yeah, either. Pens
3: are, have fallen yeah. on rocky roads, what too.
2: What's happened to the city of yeah. champions, Bill?
4: Yeah, you you got. That's a good question. I heard some. I was watching a sports show and the the, the people say when the spring uh, spring training start. You know, so they've they've already given up on the Steelers and the Penguins and they you know they're looking forward to spring training. Okay, so long, I'm, okay, I'm not going to be that person. Dark winter. You guys, I'm not going to be that person. Dark.
3: I feel good about tonight. Yeah. This is going to be our first step forward.
2: Okay, all right, all right, all right. That's, that's, get yourself a good book in the meantime. That's, that's Bill place. <laughs> Bethany Baptist Church. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Okay, have a good day. You as well.
3: All right. All right. We're taking a break. After that, our conversation turns to the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff. Mm. There's a, a big first that's happened in uh, the United States today. So we'll talk about it next. You're along for the ride home.
2: United States Senate circumventing Senator Tommy Tuberville on Thursday. Confirmed the nominations of two senior military leaders, including the first female member of the Joint Chiefs of Staffs. Wow. Mm -hmm. Admiral Lisa Frischetti was confirmed by a vote of 95 to 1 to lead the Navy, making her the first woman to serve as a Pentagon service chief and hold a seat on the Joint Chiefs of Staff.
3: That's incredible. Mm
2: -hmm. Senator David Alvin was also confirmed by a vote of 95 to 1 to be Chief of Staff of the United States Air Force. The Senate was expected to vote later this afternoon to confirm Lieutenant General Christopher Mahoney to serve as Assistant Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps. Very nice, huh? Wow,
3: that's incredible.
2: She's going to lead the Navy.
3: In the Navy. That's (sighs) super cool. Those people who rise to that level, I can't imagine not just the intellectual capability of them but the organizational lifestyle that they have to carry out it's just
2: steeliness I can't decades and decades and decades Elisa Fraschetti the vice chief of operations for the navy has broad command and executive experience a surface warfare officer she has commandeered at all levels heading the United States 6th Fleet and the United States Naval Forces in Korea. She was the second woman to be promoted to the four-star admiral post, and she did multiple deployments, including as commander of a Navy destroyer and two stints as aircraft carrier strike group commander
3: man that's so impressive that's
2: big time isn't that's it? so impressive congratulations
3: and I don't want to say it'd be harder for a woman but I do think it'd be harder for a woman of course it would be. it would just be harder because you just have to prove yourself, prove yourself. And then some, right. I, right I really think you everyone's do everyone's gonna look out yeah. the corner
2: of their eye and go yeah, what's yeah, going on here right? and
3: that's you know as a woman you know I, I'm not saying I that it's okay oh, I guess I am saying it's okay that you have to prove yourself because, why why is it okay well because lives are in your hands
2: what and, and so are lives in the hands of men too. I
3: know, but it's just it, it's a it's a newer thing. I just feel like it's
2: well, thank goodness. I mean, she's yeah. doing
3: a fine job. She's proved herself.
2: I would say so. She's so. you know.
3: <laughs> you know what well, else I think time. is interesting is I've done some reading on the ways that men make decisions and the way that women make decisions, mm-hmm. and. It just seems like a combination of men and women together in decision-making is really healthy.
2: You mean how God designed it? Yeah. <laughs> is that what you say?
3: saying?
2: <laughs> I, maybe that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I
3: but think uh, having that. all women as decision-makers or all men as decision-makers, nope. you tend to uh, congregate with like minds. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and it, the mix-up, I think if if we could find a way – to work together well, I think we could really get the best out of both genders.
2: I think it's getting better. It is getting better. At least in better. some parts of the world. And in s- right? not
3: and in other all parts, parts of the world. those poor and- women
2: who are just being, you know, denied an education and right. all that. And anyway, congratulations and uh, uh, pray for everybody in the yeah. military. Huh? Everyone needs some These help. These are here, really, and really, really really tense t- times. Right. Okay, we'll take a quick break. Hey, we want to say to our friends uh, in uh, Baltimore in the Washington D.C. area. Hi to uh, WAVA. Yeah,
3: super glad that you're along for today's ride home.
2: Biochemist Sigart is with us. Uh, he's always got something interesting to say. Mm-hmm. We'll find out what that is next.
3: Happy to have Dr. Cy Gart back on the program. Cy is a biochemist. He's taught right here at the University of Pittsburgh, also at NYU and at Rutgers University. He's the author of the book, The Work of His Hands, A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith. Cy, welcome back.
5: Thank you.
2: It's good to be here. Always a pleasure, Cy. What are you, what are you thinking about here? I, I know that you've got some, uh, a, new, a new workout yourself. Uh, tell us about that and uh, what, what you've been reading.
5: Well, yeah, I wanted to talk about books in general, because, uh, you know, in our current internet age, electronic age, sometimes one gets the feeling that reading is going out of style. You know, there's YouTube videos, which (laughs) I've made quite a few of myself, so, you know, I'm aware of them. Uh, And there, you know, there's TikTok and there are little reels that take three seconds and you watch them and that's it. But there's something about books that I think is eternal, and uh, and that is that when you read a book, you're really communicating with the person who wrote it, or they're communicating with you in a deep way, much deeper than you get just listening to a conversation or, you know, a, a, a thing that takes maybe a half an hour to watch. Uh, and I think that it's very encouraging to me that so many. Great Christian books are being written, both uh, fictional books, which I don't read very much of, but especially nonfiction books. And I think that uh, you know, apologetics and theology, and in my case, of course, the intersection between science and Christian faith. These are subjects which have gotten a lot of attention in Christian book publishing. And I, I the reason I wanted to bring it up is I've just uh, been reading two very new books that have just come out, both by fairly well-known people, uh, uh, Christians. One is a book called uh, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. Mm. Uh, and that's by a British uh, communicator named uh, Justin Brierley. And he, for many years, was the host of a show called Unbelievable, where uh, which is sponsored by the premier... Uh, Christian uh, company, which puts out a magazine as well as has this radio show. And Justin has a long, as I said, a long career of interviewing many people, many of them skeptics and and atheists, uh, about various issues that are related to Christian faith. And in that two-decade period, he has come to find, especially in the last few years, That a lot of people who used to be very fervent, fierce atheists and, you know, thought of Christianity and faith in general as something ridiculous and stupid and horrible have modified their tone considerably. And he even sees signs of the whole culture finally starting to turn away from this idea that, you know, Christianity is a thing of the past. I believe last last time I was on, I talked about this other book, which I contributed to called uh, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. Yes. Which was about a bunch of eight, 12 of us, 12, eight, 12 former atheists who became Christian uh, in response to some of the horrible rhetoric and, and, and just attitudes of some of the new atheists, the very aggressive, militant kind of atheism. Uh, and that book has just come out. It's doing quite well, uh, both here and in the UK. Uh, and Justin's book came out almost at the same time and with a very similar theme that there seems to be a trend right now uh, of, you know, turning turning backwards, going coming, or I, I guess I should say forwards, <laughs> going back to, you know, the basic. Uh, tenets of christianity even if one doesn't yet believe fully in god or fully in jesus uh, many of the ideas of the new atheists have just fallen away and what's happening now according to justin is that there is a rebirth in spirituality and especially in christianity and the book is extremely encouraging i i recommend it highly you can get it on amazon i i actually wrote a review of it, very positive. He interviews a number of people, uh, very well-known people, uh, both Christians and people on the fence and people who are, you know, uh, not quite sure. But uh, the results are fascinating to read, and he's a great writer. The other book I wanted to mention let me why- let me
3: break in for just a second sure, side sure. uh, me- when you 're talking about going back to the basics of christianity um, i don 't know it 's just fascinating to me to think of how ideas are trendy, just like clothes are yeah. trendy mm-hmm. right or right. music is trendy, right. and w- when we 're in uh, you know, a, a time like what I remember when the new atheists were such a big deal. And we'd we'd oh talk God. about new atheism over and over and over on our show. Um, We had several of them as guests. Um, a lot of angst. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of angst. That was such that was such a big thing. And when we were in that time, it was impossible to think that we would there would be a time when we'd be out of that time. Um, And Great so, point, yeah. yeah. And so looking right. back on it, Sai, what is that? I don't know. Does that cause you to look at current ideas differently or the kinds of things that we talk about, you know, in a contemporary fashion differently?
5: I think so, because, you know, I, I agree with you. I felt the same way when, I mean, I I wrote my chapter in that book because I had just become a Christian literally a few months earlier, wow. it, at least in my heart, when, when the God delusion came out. And I was afraid when that came out that I would read it and I would just say, well, okay, I made a mistake. Let me go back to atheism. But exactly the opposite happened when I read Dawkins book, The God Delusion, I realized I had made the right choice. You know, I, I thank God that he had led me to him. Uh, You know, and, and reading that book did nothing. In fact, if anything, it increased my faith. It did nothing to harm it. And that was the testimony of many I'd say at least half or more of the 12 people who wrote chapters in that book. And I, to answer your question, I think that this trend uh, new atheism is, is you could, we could really say it's dead. I mean, even atheists themselves are saying that um, many well-respected atheists who have YouTube channels uh, are, are, refuting many of the people who were the, you know, the, the, the the, the bearers of the word of new atheism and it's kind of dead and what's taking its place is not clear yet but it's something a lot more mild and benign i think mm-hmm. uh, and what, yeah i'm sorry go ahead john what's
2: interesting to me this size of if you would <clears throat> excuse me if you would read comments like say um washington post or something like that when christianity comes up and comment sections are open People are mm-hmm. still extremely angry about mm-hmm. people of faith. I mean, I don't know if that will ever disappear, but there, it, it just yeah. coalesces. And I go, "Ouch, that's a little painful." Or I don't. I mean, there is still yeah. a, a large and hard undercurrent oh. of people who are opposed to to faith.
5: Believe me, I, I'm I'm active on Twitter, and <laughs> you know, I get that a lot. So um, that's true. But think about it this way. The people who are making those very angry and very nasty comments, why are they being so angry and so nasty? I mean, that's what happens when you realize you're on the losing team, right? Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't you don't feel good. You start getting nastier. And I think, I mean, obviously, the world is not going to suddenly be Christian in the next few years. I mean, many of the atheists, especially in Europe, uh, and and many in, in in academia and in the media and the intellectual circles who have decided that atheism is correct and Christianity is just for, you know, the unwashed or whatever. Uh, yeah, they're still going to hold on to their views and they're going to be public about them. But that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the general attitude in the culture. And I think it's – and and what Justin says, and I agree – from my own observations is that there's a, there's a sense of a, of a, of a wind change, you know, it's like when the the first whiff of spring after a winter, you know, or now the first, you know, the first signs of autumn when summer is over and uh, you know, what will happen next? We don't know. That's a good question. Either this will continue. Maybe there'll be some more revivals. Maybe the new, the young generation will, show itself to be you know different from the last couple uh and 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 turn to faith and and that and that in that context i want to mention the second book which is very much written to those people it's written to people who are not christians it's written to people who are maybe not sure you know agnostic or maybe they kind of turned away from faith and now they're wondering and and this is a new book by a very well-known writer I'm sure everybody's heard of, Lee Strobel, uh, who is one of the you know the great uh, Christian apologist writers. And it's called Is God Real? It just came out a couple of days ago. And it is uh, an amazing book. I haven't finished it. I just got it. Uh, and I've started it. And it's beautifully written. I can tell that. And I just wanted to read one uh, quick thing from it. Um, which is uh he talks about what you should do if you're uh, thinking about perhaps you know considering reading this book and and seeing if it's going to change your life, and he suggests that anyone who's about to do that should do the follow say the following prayer, even if you're not a god believer, and that prayer goes, God, if you open my eyes to who you really are' That I will open my life fully to you.
3: Oh, wow!
5: And you know that that prayer just struck me because that's almost exactly what I said when I really? when I was. Is that
3: at right, Sai.
5: Yeah, I mean, I just I just wanted I just wanted to learn what was true. And that's such God, an honest you know, approach, right? Yeah, absolutely. Fabulous.
3: Listen, Cy, si, our time's already up. Um, thank you so much for joining us. We absolutely love these it's conversations with you. It
2: really is. Always a pleasure, sir. And
5: next time, I'm going to talk about my own book, which oh. is currently uh, currently my own second book, which is currently uh, in pre order. But I can mention next time it's not coming out till January. So okay, great. And
3: send send us a copy so we can get in it.
5: I, I it's on the way. Great. <laughs> Thanks, I.
3: That's Dr. Cy Gard, biochemist. Check out his first book, The Work of His Hands: A Scientist's Journey from Atheism to Faith.
2: sleeping now that the cold weather's upon us have you noticed a, a little difference
3: definitely a difference yeah I mean I, I'm not you I like don't, it. ever since I had babies you know my sleep is not so uh, soft consistent and, well it's just never it's never gone back interesting
2: that's a long time a mm-hmm. uh, US News and World Report has a new survey they have surveyed 1200 Americans about their sleep habits all right um, here's where, the consistency is key. Nearly three quarters, seventy three percent of respondents say that they have a regular bedtime routine that they follow before going to sleep, which is comparable to last year's findings. Uh, unfortunately, though, um, what's
3: the percentage you have that
2: seventy three percent a regular bedtime routine? Are you well, one of, of those seventy three percent? Yeah, yeah. Don't you have a routine? You know, you just not really you just plop down. <laughs> you just, that's it. I mean, don't you like you know go in and you know go to the bathroom and brush yeah. your teeth? Yeah, I wash do all that. I, but oh, I routine. yeah, but
3: I do that earlier in the night. Well, that's a routine. Yeah, but then early? I but then I come down. I could be up for another couple hours. I'm not going to bed after that. Right. Okay.
2: Well, then your routine's an early routine that you catch up later on. Yeah. That's still a routine. Okay. Um, sleep habits. Uh, the National Sleep Foundation says that um, uh, they recommend. Seven to nine hours of sleep between the ages of 18 and 64. Okay. And if you're over 64, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. I mean, you might get two hours, you might get 12, depending upon what's going on, <laughs> right? Okay. Yep. Uh, sleep disorders. Yeah. 43% of survey respondents said they've experienced insomnia in the last year, whether mm-hmm. going to sleep Or waking up in the middle. I'm surprised that's 43%. Yeah. But you're surprised it's not more than that? Oh, heck yeah. Uh Mm Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, 67% of respondents said they prefer sharing a bed with their spouse Mm -hmm. while sleeping. One in three said they sleep in a separate bed from their partner at night. Sleeping in separate beds has been nicknamed sleep divorce and become increasingly popular over the last year.
3: Really? Why the Mm -hmm. last year?
2: I don't say. Sleeping okay. arrangements has provided beneficial for couples who have different sleep preferences. For example, if one partner prefers a cool and quiet environment, while the other would rather sleep in a warmer room, uh, they also uh, invoke uh, snoring. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Keeping me up. Keeping me up. Leave the room. Wait, did they
3: say anything about people that sleep in the same <laughs> bed, but one spouse won't use the same blanket? <laughs> no. That's
2: a very small <laughs> subcategory. Okay, that's... 1% or just less. wondering if that's mm-hmm, no. thing that comes up. I mean, it's me. very difficult. I mean, what, what do you always say about... I always think about this. Sleep is something
3: that you... That happens to you. Mm-hmm. It's not something you do. Sleep is something that happens to you, not... But So if you start to look at it as a task, as a job that has to be performed well, it's... It is going to negatively impact your sleep. But
2: if you don't sleep well, then you get anxious, so you like want to be in charge of it.
3: Okay, you can never be in charge of it. You can. It's something that happens to you. Sleep
2: happens to you. Sleep happens to you. It's very difficult. It is
3: hard, isn't it? So it's necessary. It's hard to let go.
2: Is there any better feeling in the world than waking up from a good night's sleep? Oh, my gosh. Oh, excellent. just so excellent. All right. We'll All take right. a little few snoozes here. That's right. We'll be we'll back be, during the 5 we'll o'clock hour. We'll be
3: right hour. back. You're on the right home. Oh.
2: Hey, good afternoon, and welcome to the 5 o'clock edition of The Ride Home. I'm John Hall with Kathy Emmons. Uh, a perfectly beautiful fall day. Uh, uh, has this happened in your neighborhood? Overnight, of course, another freeze. I take a walk this morning. All the leaves have fallen off the trees, mm. or they're in the process thereof.
3: And the, the hum of the,
2: mm-hmm.
3: you know, summer evening? Gone. Gone.
2: Yes, yeah, the crickets. That makes me sad. Fallen away. Do you think they go underground, or they just pass away? I'll <laughs> we'll have to
3: bring someone on who you knows something more right. about that.
2: An ornithologist, mm-hmm. right? Or is that a, it's a bird person. No, that's What's so an in per, insect person?
3: Entomologist Entomology. or etymologist. Uh-huh. One's words. All right. One is insects. I don't remember. If
2: which you're out it. there, join us. 800-320-8255. <laughs> what a cri- where do crickets go? Yeah. And it's at the end I of think the mm-hmm. I think they probably die. I think they probably do. All
3: right. Uh, so speaking of cold weather in November, we are about one year away from the presidential election. Mm -hmm. Almost exactly. Yep. Right? So the next 12 months are going to be awful, (laughs) just as far as discourse goes. We're going to try to provide, as we always do, an oasis um, from politics. So we're not going to get angsty Mm -mm, and we're not mm -mm, going to get you know mm -mm. fighting words and any of that. However, I like to take a step back and kind of look at the strategy of it. Um, And uh, two stories came to us today as we were kind of perusing. The first one, for me, John, I found in Politico, um, Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., Interesting because he's from the, you know, infamous or famous Kennedy family Camelot, the exactly the uh, Democratic uh, ancestral group, mm-hmm. right of uh, American of, royalty, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> However, he doesn't fall into the classic, you know, Democrat. Form. Right. He's not in the mold. He's not particularly liked, it seems, by his cousins. <laughs> what do you think?
2: Yeah, he does kind of fall outside of the uh JFK, RFK mold.
3: Right. He kinda got into the conspiracy theory mm-hmm. thing during COVID, uh was an is an anti vaxxer.
2: Right. So uh, not necessarily mainstream. However, he does have large swaths of support, doesn't he? He
3: he does. Well, listen to this. Uh, A new poll just came out today from Quinnipiac. It shows him with 22 percent support. I mean, that's incredible in a hypothetical three way race against Biden and Trump. So Biden, by contrast, would take 39 percent as of this poll. Trump would come away with 36 percent. Right, um, and Kennedy will have the backing of a, of a plurality of independents. Thirty-six percent chose him, uh, compared with thirty-one percent for Trump and thirty for Biden. Hmm. So, if he's at twenty-two percent, he can't break through the two-party system as far as the electoral college map. Right, right. It's not. It's still so to way too low. Right, but. Of course, the bigger threat is who is he going to hurt more? Is he going to hurt Trump more or Biden more? Um, or siphoning just enough votes from one of them to swing some kind of coin flip state, right? right. So uh, I thought that Kennedy would pull more from Biden, but it turns out that he's pulling more from Trump. That's surprising to me. I know.
2: Yeah. Uh, so I wonder what this means. I mean, no, it's uh,
3: only 3% more, right, so it's not still, a but still,
2: uh, do you know anybody who is an RFK supporter? Yes. Do you? Mm-hmm and
3: it's because of his covid position okay that's what it is. It has nothing to do with anything else. I don't even know if they know anything else about him. Right. The it's about it's a it's a, a group of people four people and they are behind RFK.
2: So I wonder what happens. The primaries are going to get underway very soon here. Right. I mean, after the new year, primaries will ramp up and that's kind of like first blush, major push forward for candidates. Will RFK have any mojo in the early primaries?
3: I think it's going to I think if he does in the early primaries, it's going to be like a stone going downhill. I think he's going to get more and more and more. Because I, there are a ton of people in America who are like us thinking, really, we're, we're back to these two guys. Right.
2: Yeah. You, you try to be even keeled about this. But I mean, if anything, over the last 12 years have taught us, there's no even or keel to American That's politics sure. today. OK, so case in point, uh, the seventh is coming up. Right. There's that next Tuesday, Election Day. Right. There's a major article in today's Washington Post. Not about something in Washington. But here locally, and the headline is, How a Pittsburgh County Election Foreshadows the 2024 Presidential Debate. Now, this is Allegheny County, right? Wow. This is Joe Rocky, Sarah Emirato. And it's a major, major fight because uh, the Democrats, of course, largely historically, they control... Whether it's Allegheny County or the city of Pittsburgh politics, that's just right. how so. Pittsburgh if you're a Democrat, you're going to win. Pretty much so, people are going to go in there and click. However, Joe Rocky is what's being called in this article as the perfect candidate to battle this yeah. uh, Democrat uh, upstart.
3: Yeah, I mean, she's way way left, of Rich Fitzgerald, yep. who's uh, been in that position for a long, for a long time. Long Rich time. Fitzgerald himself has not endorsed her.
2: No, he hasn't. So there's a lot of fear and trepidation. It's interesting, people in my neighborhood are Democratic stalwarts so much so they're involved in local politics. Their, lar- your, their yard signs are all out. Sarah's is missing.
3: Okay. So, so it's all Democrats but me. her. So, But they're not going to the throw their support behind Rocky. Right. Does that mean they don't vote in that race? No,
2: I'm sure they do vote, but just an outward appearance. Once you're in the voting booth or you're doing your mail-in ballot, it's different as opposed to your outward support, which is very strange. I mean, socialist that whole thing uh, being thrown at Sarah Morato. Well,
3: she's she's Uh, just way left. Big time. Yeah. And she's also, in my mind, I, I just can't imagine she'd be qualified for that position.
2: I don't think she is as well. But, you know, politics are strange bedfellows. Same thing is, is happening right now with uh, the uh, district attorney's rate. Rates, yeah. Right. Dugan and Zapala. Zapala right. has lived in that office for decades. Right. But for the last three or four years, hasn't apparently been to that office um, very often. Right. So it'll be interesting to see how it all sorts out. And died in the wool Democrats versus died in the wool Republicans, there seems like there's an awful lot of shuffle and movement between those two.
3: So it's attracting, it's interesting to me that that's attracting attention in the Washington Post.
2: Well, the Washington Post says, as this race goes, so goes the debate or the race for president in 2024, right? All because of the shuffles on, and, you know, the uncertainty about what to expect in these next few
3: days. I don't know. It makes me think if we, if in a can be elected and that is some sort of uh, harbinger of what's to come. Hard left harbinger. I mean, that that would be a real shock to me. I mean, that we that the country would swing that far left.
2: It would be as much of a shock,
3: especially in light of what's going on in Israel.
2: But as the morning of after Donald Trump was elected president, which was such a shock, that was a shock. <laughs> right. I mean, you never thought, whole How did this happen? I never. So never politics now are shifting. Uh, it's a generational thing. It's an emotional thing that's different than what it was even 10, 20 years ago. To be continued. We'll see. Okay, we'll take a quick break. We come back. We're just getting underway here with a 5 o'clock hour. We're going to talk about hospitality and thrift. That's next here. We're Pittsburgh's Christian Talk. It's the right home. Word FM. I think it's fair to say that this country was built upon the ethos of thrift. That thrift was raised up in the proper way to live a life. Maybe in the last few decades or so, in our um, consume-all world, Thrift has fallen away, right? People Mm -hmm. who are thrifty in some ways are looked at maybe not cultish, but in some ways close to that.
3: Or maybe backward.
2: But what about thrift? What does it mean, especially as believers? Well, Susan Metis is with us. She's got a piece in uh, Christianity Today this month, and it is all about thrift. It is called Where Your Treasure Is. Susan, welcome to the show.
6: Thank you so much. Glad to be here.
3: Susan, I saw an article today in my reading uh, talking about how despite inflation, despite the incredible numbers we're seeing, uh, U.S. consumer spending isn't backing off. And so the question was, from an economic perspective – How long can we expect this to last? You know, how long are Americans going to keep spending, uh, even though they see inflation going up and up and up? Um, So, like John said, we're married to consumption. And I think as far as the church goes, we've got a complicated history in how we think about spending money.
6: (laughs) Yes, we do. And boy, I wish there was a simple answer. but. The fact is, um, economics is so much built on trust and on our responses to each other's behavior, it's really hard to nail down a number. Um, So when you see people overspending, a lot of that is because we have the opportunity to kind of spend in the future and not feel it now, but also because in some ways it looks to the people who are measuring our economy like it's doing well when people are spending. Mm -hmm. And I think what we really have to ask ourselves is what what is good for us on an individual level, rather than relying on measures of GDP and consumer confidence.
2: Right. So, Susan, talk to us about the the virtue of thrift. As I said just coming in a minute or so ago, it was held up as, you know, sort of the backbone of America, but that's not so true anymore. But thrift is a good thing, especially if you're a believer, yeah?
6: It is. Uh, one of the things that inspired me to write this article was was saying, you know, I think I think we all have this understanding that living at or below our means is kind of an obligation. It's something that's responsible. But I asked, "What did Jesus say about that?" And is thrift something He talked about? Um, the answer that I came up with, and, and I wanted to talk to people who knew more about this and about about Jesus' words and about um, money than I did, is. Um, when, when Jesus was talking about money, was he actually talking about the way we spend it and the way that we understand it? And the answer is yes and no. So Jesus cared about waste. He told his disciples to gather up the extra baskets of fish and bread. We don't know what he did with them. Um, he might have donated them. He might have made his disciples eat them for two weeks. We really don't know. <laughs> no. the, the first is an act of generosity, and the second is an act of thrift. We don't have that information. We do have the information that Jesus sometimes threw thrift to the wind and told his disciples to also. So when, you know, Mary of Bethany broke open the perfume and poured it over his feet, the objection that Judas raised was uh, an appeal to thrift. Think of what that money could have done if he'd spent it better. And Jesus rejected that because there was something more worthy than the other ways that that money could have been spent. And so I think it, one of the things that we have to talk about is, what is that money for? Why is it that we want to spread it thin in one place and sick in another? Or do we just want to spread it thin everywhere? And is that really godly? Yeah. Um, I would argue that no, we do want to spread it thin in some places and thick in others.
3: That's interesting. Gwen. I don't know if any of us can have this conversation without thinking about our parents or our grandparents or whoever and how they uh, affected our outlook on money. Um, and so I remember being kind of thrust between poles uh, with my with my grandparents, with my husband's parents, and just how people look at money. And it's funny about... Um, my mother-in-law in in particular was so incredibly thrifty and anything in her life that was not or or was in somebody else's life that wasn't thrifty was the object of scorn and it didn't (laughs) matter like percentages didn't matter it it didn't matter if that person was incredibly wealthy and so for them it was a very small percentage it didn't matter it was just thrift was was the ultimate good Um, and I came from a family, my mom was just extravagant in her understanding of giving and generosity and food and you know what I mean? So it wasn't just a monetary Mm -hmm. thing. It was like kind of like a
6: lifestyle. Did you find
3: something like that in your research?
6: Definitely. So when you are thrifty all the time in every aspect of your life, there are words for that that are not. (laughs) 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 christ-like <laughs> 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 you know it, it, you you become a tight you right. know you become a miser and you also are are spending a whole lot of time and energy thinking about money and one of the things that i really felt it was important to get across was that jesus kept saying to the people following him take your focus off money don't keep paying attention to money mm. I'm the one who you need to be depending on. And so I I think there's this misdirection where we feel like if we pay attention to money, but we hate it, or if we pay attention to money so that we don't spend it, that we're doing it right. And I think the answer is that we need to be looking higher. We need to have our focus on Jesus' objectives and on what He wants us to be doing with our resources.
2: Hmm. So Jesus did not command us to downsize. I mean, you talk about this. (laughs) Shane Claiborne says this. It it is a fine line, right? I mean, Dave Ramsey, a proponent of, you know, super thrifty way of living, not trying to go above your means. It's an important thing because, I mean, if you're above your means, of course, you're not able to give properly. You're not able to have that hospitality properly.
6: Yeah, yeah, it's very true. And what's more, if the money stress that you can create by living above your means is something that puts a strain on your marriage, it's something that can, you know, have a have a huge effect in other really important aspects of life. Mm-hmm. So the the point here is not to be irresponsible with money, and I think we've all seen people who are irresponsible um, because you know they they feel like it's kind of otherworldly, <laughs> but that's not what we're asked to do. On the other hand, um, not all of us are necessarily asked to downsize, but I think some of us are, and you do see it in the Bible. There is the you know the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, and he wants to do everything right except give up his money, and I don't think, um, and the people I talked to didn't think that that was a universal command to Christians to give up everything but it is a command to all christians um with jesus you know sermon on the on the uh, mount to um, i don't actually remember if it was a sermon on the mount so if you don't mind editing that um, if that can be done sure um jesus words to a crowd following him he told each and every person following him to sell what they have and give to the poor the difference is selling all you have and giving to the poor but I think we forget that our resources are really things that Christ lays a claim on, mm-hmm. and that therefore preserving that margin and making sure that it's really ours to give is kind of important. Um, when when you talk about Dave Ramsey, I think there is a there can be some confusion about whether living below your means is really a you know, something that Jesus was talking about all the time, rather than just general wisdom for life.
4: Mm-hmm.
6: I think it falls in, under many of the things that, uh, that we read in Proverbs where usually if this, then this in your life, usually if you raise your children, um, if you discipline your children, they will have a better life because it helps, you know, build, build the self-control in them. Likewise. Usually if you live below your means, you're going to have the ability to give and you're going to have less money stress and you won't be thinking about money all the time. But I think it would be a mistake to take that as something that um, was Christ's guidance because He really didn't give that guidance. He was talking about the, the peace that is in our hearts when we depend on Him.
3: Susan Metis is with us, associate editor for Christianity Today magazine, also a behavioral scientist. She's worked with the Barna Group, with Thrivent Financial, with World Vision. But today we're talking about um, not spending money, but maybe saving it. What does thrift look like? Um, you used a word uh in your piece that kind of made me laugh when you were talking about uh, Jesus' view of money. Um, and it was that Jesus... It seems to me, and I, I and you said the same thing that when he talks about money, he kind of says that if we rely on it, it's just silly uh, because it just is so nonsensical based on what we're looking at in eternity. And I thought that that really makes sense to me. I guess if we knew what he knew about the world and what's coming, then relying on money would just seem really dumb.
6: Yeah, yeah. I I felt that when I was reading through Jesus' words on money, and what I, what I thought I was seeing was his pity on us, because this is so important to us, and it's so unimportant in the long run. And as you look through the Bible, you'll see God telling people over and over, "Look, I don't need what you have. I, you know, I gave this to you. You know, and yes, you need food, and yes, you need clothes, but I don't need what you have." So you just need to understand that i am really the provider of what you need. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, i think one of the reasons that we need to manage money and manage resources that you know, whether it's, you know, property or or something else that's not exactly money is because this is a this is a way that we learn how to follow god. Um, even when there are other things around us that give us, you know, a sense of security to not find our security in those things is really important. And that is so much of the message of what Jesus kept repeating to the people who are
1: following him.
2: So thrift is good. I think we can agree with that. But what about extravagance? Uh, Thrift provides a cushion for extravagance. Mm -hmm. And is extravagance a, a negative thing or extravagance can be a good thing? Yeah.
6: I really like how you put that a cushion, yeah, extravagance can be a really good thing, and again, we see that in jesus behavior um, he He loves to give, he loves to to thrill people with you know things beyond what they imagined and some of the valuable things that he gives people in the Bible are not in the form of money, uh, most of those are um you know vision, um a meal when they're hungry. But he also accepts worship that's really quite extravagant, and I think wants us to enjoy worship in a way that's really quite extravagant.
1: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, beyond that, though, one of the really the threads that runs through the Bible is that a righteous person is a generous person, and that we do not begrudge people who need something what we have, and and in fact, Christians are told to the extent that we relate our assets to serve the needs of others. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. One of my sources who lived in the Middle East um, talked about how she hears a lot of American Christians do kind of acrobats to, uh, to get out of that. Hmm. And again, all of the scholars uh, and other uh, thought leaders that I talked to really emphasize We can't get out of that. We have to give. We have to be generous. And what's more, it is something that we really enjoy. And that enjoyment of that generosity is one of the things that tells us that the Holy Spirit is at work in us.
3: Really interesting. Interesting piece you've written. That's Susan Metis, Associate Editor for CT, Behavioral Scientist as well. Um, You can check out the article, Where Your Treasure Is?, Thrift can help us follow Jesus' teachings on money, but it can also steer our hearts off course. That's in this month's CT. Susan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Does this make sense?
2: It is what makes sense.
3: Stinky Cheese. Now you can look at stinky. You can look at your blue cheeses, your Roquefort, mm-hmm. your uh, Stilton. You can look at your Gorgonzola. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could go like the Camembert, which is stinkier. Your Limburger, your Brie, those, and then there's a whole area beyond a frontier of stink. Wet socks. It's something in the car. It's just. Anyway, so my question for you is, does that make sense?
2: Well, it's a complex question, right? Because stink does matter when you eat something. Yeah. So you have to sort of go through the stink to get to the taste. So the question is, is the stink worth it?
3: And also the question, don't you think, is what what? Intensity of stink? Are we talking about
2: a lot? You know some stinky cheeses. I mean, if you go down to Penn Mac and you say to the you know the cheese people, "Give me a stinky cheese,"
3: then you are going to get something Man. that.
2: So my wife, she is a, um, she's a proponent of stinky cheese,
3: and she lived in Italy for a short period, mm. and she was immersed in it.
2: Yeah. Now she's presented all manner of stinky cheese. Some of them I'm like I'm I'm fine with this. Mm-hmm. Others I'm like. Get that away from me, because that's like roadkill. So I guess it all depends upon the particular cheese and the so, taste so, after the fact. So
3: you can't say yes or no. no it depends. Neither no. can I. No, that's that's exactly where I was coming down on stink and mm-hmm. cheese, because I love the the whole blue section. Yeah, I oh, love it yeah. all. Sure. Bring it all. The Camembert Limburger. I can I can do that. Brie, fine. You go further than that, though. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to say it depends. It's rough. Stinky cheese.
2: Okay, this is maybe like a couple days too late, but does this make sense? Horror films. Oh. Now, as you know, I'm a proponent of uh, Turner Classic. Right. They're showing like these old classics, which to me is just a nice blend of horror in a mild way and tension. A modern day horror film to me is like way over the top.
3: Oh my gosh. I hate horror movies. They do not make sense.
2: But wait! Don't They're, you like to be no frightened? Not really. I mean, it's the it's the it's the largest genre in American movie Yeah, making. I
3: can't. I really hate it. It does not make sense. I say unequivocally no.
2: Hmm. There are such things as Christian horror films oh, as get, well. Don't even. I mean, it does. It's, don't don't
3: get me started. Doesn't make sense, John.
2: All right.
3: Does it make sense to you?
2: The old style, yeah. A <laughs> oh! new version, no.
3: But all of a sudden, it depends.
2: Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, well, if you've been paying any attention at all, you see what's happening uh, in Israel, in the Palestine war, which is a a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And the the, the sort of backwash, what's happening here, especially on college campuses or in New York City, where there is this incredible incredible rise of anti Jewish hatred. I mean, it's shocking.
3: And it's loud. I mean, it's not, it's, it's a very small percentage of people who are doing it, but man, are they amplified?
2: Well, that's what it is to be in the modern times. And here we are, of course, in the city of Pittsburgh five years ago, the tree of life massacre happened. So we are deeply attuned to this. Yeah, we are. And as believers as well, there's a particular thread to all of this. Jeff Jacoby's with us. He's an op-ed columnist with the Boston Globe, and he's speaking about and knowing so well, Anti Jewish hate. Hey, Jeff, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, John and Kathy. It's good to talk to you, though I could wish we were meeting to talk about something less somber and sad.
3: I know. Um, So, Jeff, uh, tell us your story. Um, Where are you from? What's your background?
1: Uh, Well, I'm a columnist for the Boston Globe. I've been writing a column at the Globe, which is the the largest newspaper in New England for. Uh, for a long time, since 1994, and for the last several years, I've also been writing a weekly newsletter, which is basically uh, even more of my writing that they managed to to, to get me to produce every week. Um, but I grew up in Cleveland. My father uh, was a Holocaust survivor. My father's family was murdered in Auschwitz, and he was the only member of his family who came out alive. And he was originally from Czechoslovakia, from a from a small rural town, and. Uh, Eastern Czechoslovakia. He emigrated to the United States in 1948 and moved to Cleveland. Met my mother, uh, and I was raised in the Jewish community in Cleveland, in a community that had many Holocaust survivors. Uh, you know, among the adults, I would say at least a third to a half of my classmates growing up in in the Jewish day school that we attended were the children of of Holocaust survivors. So the, the you know the awareness of anti-Semitism and. And the awareness of what it could lead to has been a part of my consciousness uh, almost since I was was aware that I could have consciousness, if you know what I mean. Um, I, I can recall – I can still – I have a memory of myself in second or third grade writing the word Hitler on the bottom of my shoes so that I could literally – rub out his name as i as mm-hmm. i walked that 's how that 's how ingrained the, uh, the the knowledge of it was to me and over the years you know i 've written about anti semitism i 've written about jewish life i 've written about you know any number of things even though Certainly, on the you know in a newspaper like the Boston Globe, I write about all kinds of things—politics sure. and economics and foreign affairs—and you know all the things that you would usually expect to find. Uh, but but this has always been, for obvious reasons, a key theme and, and an important one for me. And I've tried to use my column and my newsletter to explain to readers um, how anti-Semitism works and why why it's a mistake to simply lump it in with. Other kinds of bigotry, which is a very common thing that politicians and, and public officials like to do, um, in fact, we just saw just the other, just yesterday I think President Biden or, or Kamala Harris, the Vice President, making some announcements about a, about a new initiative against islamophobia um, anti Semitism is a creature completely different and when you, if you know anything about Jewish history and, and the history of of Jews in the world, then you know. I mean, I know that I'm talking to a to a, to, a, to a Christian host and to a Christian audience. So we all know that in Genesis, God tells Abraham uh, that his descendants will will be spread north and south and east and west throughout the world. Um, and God, on the one hand, makes a promise to the Jewish people that they will never be completely destroyed. But I would say the flip side of that promise is that there will always be people who will be driven by a, by a desire, by a passion, to nevertheless try to bring about the destruction of the Jewish people. At the Passover Seder every year, there's one point in, in the liturgy, which is called the Haggadah, uh, in, in which we we recite a line that says that what pharaoh tried to do to the jews in to the israelites in egypt Um, and you remember how in exodus they talk about the you know the order from pharaoh to drown every baby jewish boy that was born Um, at the the seder we say it wasn't only then but rather in every generation there have been those who arose to try to wipe out the jews and in the end god always prevents that from happening but as we know from my father's generation you, you know the, the Jews survived but look how many were killed one out of every 3 Jews on earth was murdered by the nazis uh, and when you look at what happened in in southern israel on october 7 the the bloodlust the uh, the the brutality the sadism the glee with yes. which all those israelis were murdered tells you that this is not just this is not just a case of bigotry i don't like Jews, the way I don't like blacks, or I don't like Chinese, or I don't like Yankees fans. It, it's something very different, it's of a whole different caliber. And I would say that connected to all of that is the reaction that you're talking about in the streets of America and in and, and Europe, on college campuses, which we're accustomed to thinking of as the place where the most educated people in America can be found, the most enlightened, the most elite, the ones who've had exposure to the most uh, thoughtful ideas. And yet it's precisely there where we're being reminded that antisemitism is not a function of ignorance. It's not a function of, of lack of awareness. It's not a function of, uh, of being low class. It's not a function of being a peasant. You can be a college professor, a tenured college professor at Cornell University and be telling a crowd that you were exhilarated and excited by the slaughter that Hamas carried out, which, was, which really happened. Yes. You, see the, you see these crowds of students and professors carrying signs, I stand with Palestine, or resistance by any means necessary, uh, a celebration of this kind of violence. And it's all just one more reminder that that anti-Semitism is a kind of arrangement, uh, a, a way of looking at the world in which whatever you hate most you find a way to blame the Jews for. Today, uh, you know what people, what you know, college students are taught to hate most is colonialism and apartheid and and and, and uh, uh, you know oppression and racism. Whatever you hate most, you find a way to to accuse Jews of it. In the Middle Ages, what Christian Europe was taught to hate most were people who rejected Jesus, people who rejected Christ, and they blamed that. On Jews and held Jews responsible for that in the in the 14th century, as the Black Death was slow, you know was was causing uh, countless people to die of bubonic plague, people found a way to blame Jews for that. So my point is that it's not it's not that there's some mistake that can be corrected and anti-Semitism goes away. It's it's like a, a, a an ineradicable virus that keeps resurfacing you know over and over again in history. And I fear that we are living now in an era that None of us could have could have predicted six months ago a revival of worldwide anti-Semitism. And frankly, I like a lot of people in the Jewish community, am frightened about the thought of what it might be leading to. I'm sure. And
2: Jeff, it's shocking. I mean, you know, as you talk about Hitler eradicating one in three Jews, I mean, the the number this number worldwide, of course, I'm sure you know this sixteen and a half million Jews worldwide in a world population of more than eight billion people. And so we right. point to the Jews as the source of all the problems. And as I talk Talk to you in an email just yesterday, my 20 my year old kid sitting on the couch last night and going, Why do people hate Jews? And is it just ignorance that people don't know their history, or is it always just the Jews or the bad guys worldwide, historical, and that's how it's going to be?
1: It's like saying, I would, you know, I, I think I would answer your son by saying, Why do people, why are there people who are who are uh, who who are bipolar you know why why is it not possible to eliminate this the, the certain kind of derangement the certain kind of mentality maybe that's not such a good example because that's more of a more of a sickness than a than a pathology um you know why why you know why does cancer Kill. Yeah, yeah. Cancer kills because that's what because cancer is lethal because cancer is murderous and because we haven't figured out a way to cure cancer. And hatred of Jews is the, it's the oldest social cancer in in, in human history. You, you know, I mean, just to go back to the Bible, you see the way Jews were spoken of spoken of you know i mentioned exodus but also in the book of esther look at the way Hmm. Haman spoke of the jews oh there's this people scattered throughout the you know throughout the king's lands and you know and they 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 stick to their own rules and to their own their own practices and the king might as well wipe them all out over and over and over again you see this kind of thing in 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 the year 70, when the Roman legions destroyed the temple in in Jerusalem and brought an end to Jewish sovereignty, uh, you know, that would, and and sent Jews into an exile uh, from which they would not. You know, return to sovereignty until 1948 with the creation of Israel. There was a, a huge triumph, as they called it, that was held in Rome. Uh, you know, a gigantic parade, a gigantic festival in which they celebrated the destruction of Judea, which is what what the, what the land of Israel was called then. And these 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 triumphs uh, had enormous. Um, uh, you know, d- dramas like gigantic stages that would be paraded through the city, you know, through throughout Rome, demonstrating and, and, and reenacting many of the battles that had taken place during the during the, the, the Roman crushing of the of the Jewish revolt. And the very last thing in that great triumph in the year seventy was someone carrying a Torah scroll unrolled. That was the final thing, and it was meant to symbolize to the. Hundreds of thousands of people who were watching this parade through Rome, that the ultimate defeat had been inflicted by the Roman legions because they had destroyed the Torah, they had destroyed the Jewish religion. It would be no more. And you can go to Rome today and see the arc, uh, you know, the, the Arch of Titus, which shows the the vessels of the of the Jewish temple being you know carried off into uh, as booty and as plunder. And you stand there and you look at it and you think. The Roman Empire is gone and yet the Jews are still here. And it's, I would say it's something that 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 again, I'm talking to a religious audience, I would say it's this is something that God has built into the way the world works. God you know chose Abraham and said that his, his children would would influence the world for for good. He told Abraham that, you know, through you, the whole world will be blessed. And I'm sure that Christians, knowing that Jesus was a Jew and, and worshipped in Hebrew and it, uh, you know, and, and studied the Torah would, you know, would certainly agree with that. Um, and at the same time, God said to him, those who bless you, I will bless. I will curse those who curse you. And history is full of example after example after example of people, whether individuals or entire nations, that were determined to curse the Jews and wipe them out. Uh, and in the end, the Jews are the ones who survive, but often only after paying a very terrible and frightening price. Yeah.
3: Jeff Jacoby's with us. He's an op-ed columnist at the Boston Globe. Jeff, we need to take a break. Can you stay with us for a couple? Sure. Be glad to. We'll be right back. It's the ride home.
2: Jeff Jacoby is with us. He's an op-ed columnist for the Boston Globe. We're talking about why do people hate Jews? Mm -hmm.
3: Jeff, uh, I just was really uh, edu- both educated and moved by what you said in our last segment about uh, growing up as the son of Holocaust survivors. And um, just you gave us a great like historical sweep of uh, anti-Semitism. We only have about three minutes, uh, Jeff, so mm-hmm. this is going to have to be tight. But uh, my question sure. for you is, in light of all of that, um, I... W- w- As part of the Christian community, John and I both, what do do we do? What can we do? Um, I don't stand by the state of Israel 100% of the time. I don't think any, I don't stand by any country 100% of the time, but I certainly stand by the Jews 100% of the time. And so, but I don't know what that would look like. And from my perspective as a Christian, from your perspective as a Jew, uh, what can I do?
1: It's not an easy question to answer. If there were an easy answer, I guess we would all have figured it out a long time ago. I guess I would say, Kathy, first of all, the Jewish people need allies. You know, we've mm. always needed allies. You mentioned the Jews are such a tiny, tiny fragment yep. of the world's population. I think it's, you know, two two. Two tenths of one percent, or two one hundredths of one percent—some tiny, insignificant fragment—and you know, there's this this myth that's been perpetrated by anti-Semites for so long. The Jews are all powerful. The Jews pull the strings of the world. The Jews control finance. You know, I mean, you think of Henry Ford, uh, right. you know, publishing uh, you know the, the anti-Semitic screeds and and, and and spreading it all over uh, all over the English-speaking world. There's this myth that Jews are all powerful, that they have so much so much control, but Jews need friends, Jews need allies, and I guess what I would say if I were asked what could what can Christians do um, uh, w- one is just to express that support you know not just to you know not just to keep it to yourselves not just to think it uh, in your own heart but to you know but to express it publicly um i i would say number 2 is to try to learn more about the history of antisemitism and to try to get some understanding of it and especially to go back to the very first point that i made why it's not just some form one of many countless forms of bigotry but something unique in world history and i've been thinking in these last you know these last few weeks that it would be wonderful if Christians all over America would organize, or Christian leaders, whether you know Catholic or Protestant or, or, or Orthodox, would organize a massive outpouring of uh, of support. You know, I remember, I remember back in nineteen eighty seven, something like a quarter of a million people came in support of Soviet Jews right. yeah. uh, on, on the Washington Mall. Now, granted, that was largely organized by by the Jewish communities, but wouldn't it be wonderful to see a million a million Christians publicly you know coming together to demonstrate in support as you say not not in support necessarily of Israel but in support of of Jews. Jewish survival yeah. in support of the right of the Jewish people to uh, you know to, to to live as part of the human family without constantly being threatened and, and you know and and come together to denounce unequivocally those who would wipe them out i just think that to see a tremendous outpouring of support by Christians on, on behalf of their of their Jewish neighbors and c- fellow citizens would be wonderful. If I you know if I can make a quick plug here, I, you know I've I've written quite a bit in the last few weeks about this stuff, and if any of your listeners are interested, you know I have a humble website jeffjacoby.com, com where I post my columns and people can sign up for a for a mailing list where I'm, I'm happy to send my columns out no paywall no ads to anybody who's interested in seeing them. Um, uh, and, you know, I mean, to the extent that I can help, just as the conversation goes forward and, you know, in days and weeks to come, I'm here for you.
2: That's very good. Jeff, thank you yeah, so it's much. it's
1: been a real pleasure, For Jeff. your
2: clarity, for your passion. We're sorry for what you're going we through. We are truly sorry, for and we do support you, and we'll continue this conversation as we have in the past, and your voice has been very valuable for us here today. Jeff Jacoby from the Boston Globe. Please find him easily.
3: JeffJacoby.com.
2: The Ride Home with John and Kathy,
0: a production of Salem Media Group. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's